I have found the key Honey darling, you believe Lonesome roads we've seen Well honey darling, keep your eyes wide and see That we can join our hands And take for hours all of this land Honey darling, you understand if it's hill in your heart, I can. Listeners. Hello. I'm Andrew. I'm Rachel. Mercury is out in the back, and this is... I didn't choose a podcast. From Below. <laughs> no, it's not. Okay. What is it? Armchair Apocrypha. Armchair Apocrypha. That's right. This is the show where armchair experts tell possibly true stories. Mm-hmm. Um, how was your week? It was good. It was good. It was nice. I've actually seen you a couple of days this yeah, week, so it was uh, probably less stressful than the last few weeks. It was. For those of you who don't know, Rachel and I are roommates, and there have been there have been literal months where I've seen her maybe three or four times, <laughs> even though we shared the same space. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so anytime I see her like twice in a week, I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> it's a good week then, yeah. right? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> you had your family over for dinner mm-hmm. on Monday. Mm-hmm. Made some wings and some salad. Made some wings and some salad. We do not have the space for all of your family. No, it was a small <laughs> space for that many people. Yeah. But, oh well, they oh enjoyed well. it. Yep. Um, How was your week? It was pretty good. Um, it was stressful. It's the last week. Uh, it was the last week before JCTC starts on Monday, mm-hmm. which means all of the students are coming in at the last minute and going, hey, I need to do my FAFSA. Yeah. And it's like, you know you know that if you do it on Wednesday, JCTC's not going to have it until Monday, mm-hmm. and they'll already have dropped you from your classes by that point. Oh, my goodness. So it was a little bit stressful, but it was pretty good, and I got paid on Friday, and then I good. went this morning and got an oil change, got my hair cut, and then stopped by Aldi and bought... Uh, groceries. groceries and then ate like a pound of shrimp nice. for lunch because I felt like it <laughs> um, and then went into a food coma so it's Sounds been a like pretty a good Saturday don't you? it's been a pretty productive Saturday so far <laughs> and then after this we're gonna go build those shelves yes, so. yes we are um, yeah do you want to get into today's episode let's do it all right have you ever heard of Hattie Canty I don't think so. Okay. Well, she was a labor organizer from Las Vegas. L.A. Nice. L.V.? L.A. <laughs> oh, Las Vegas. Las Vegas. I've been here in Los Angeles. L.V. L.V. <laughs> uh, Hattie Caddy was born in Alabama in 1934 and grew up near Mobile. Following high school, she married and had two children. When she and her husband divorced, Canty moved with her children to San Diego, where she worked as a housekeeper and a cook. So near L.A., but not in L.A. Close enough. (laughs) Uh, In 1961, Canty had remarried and moved with her family to Las Vegas. 
Uh, she stayed home to take care of 10 children while her husband worked for the Silver State oh Disposal. Oh, God, that sounds awful. Yeah. Wait until I get to the end. She had even more. No. In 1972, she went to work as a maid at the Thun- Thunderbird Hotel. Uh, the American dream that Canny believed in um, ended with her husband's death in 1975. Mm. She was left at age 41 to raise uh, the eight children still living at home. Now the sole support for her family, she worked as a janitor and then as a maid in private homes. Needing health insurance for herself and her children, she found employment in 1979 at the new Maxim Hotel Casino, first as a maid and then as a uniformed attendant. After her return to the casino workforce, Candy became involved in the Culinary Workers Union, uh, Union 226, an affiliate of the Hotel Employees and Restaurant Employees International Union. She was elected to the executive board in 1984, the year that local 226 staged a successful 75-day walkout against Las Vegas casinos in an effort to gain better health insurance benefits for culinary workers. Mm. 75 days. Union members elected Canny president in 1990. She held that position for over a decade. Whoa. Yep. Canny's tenure as the head of the union coincided with the longest labor strike in American history. In September 1991, 550 culinary workers at the Frontier Hotel walked off the job over unfair labor practices by the casino's owners. Their strike ended six and a half years later. Whoa. When the Frontier's new owner settled with the union. Whoa. As president of the Culinary Union, Canty strived to ensure that workers would receive living wages in order to support themselves and their families. She also sought to integrate the union and see minorities attain higher level jobs. Uh, she was African American, in case I didn't say that earlier. Uh, one of her proudest achievements was the establishment of the Culinary Training Academy in 1993. The Las Vegas-based academy continues to teach, teach the job skills necessary for employment in the hospital industry in Las Vegas. Canny's unifying presence helped dissolve racial animosities in the ethnically diverse union, convincing members that solidarity and labor organizations could bring about tangible gains. As a result, by the mid-1990s, maids and other hotel employees in Las Vegas could earn more than double the average wage of service workers in other cities. This was due in large part to the efforts of Canny, who in addition to holding the union presidency, also organized a job training program uh, and unionized hotel workers uh, at the start of the 21st century. Um, Her obituary uh, after her death said that Hattie M. Canty entered this life June 10th, 1993, or 1933, sorry. Uh, Hattie Canty entered this life June 10th, 1933 in St. Stephen's, Alabama, and departed this life July 12th, 2012, at Valley Hospital in Las Vegas. Hattie leaves to cherish her precious memories, four sons and four daughters, um, their names, uh, and then she leaves behind 20 grandchildren and 14 great-grandchildren. Woo! Wee! Yep. So eight children, 20 grandchildren, 14 great-grandchildren. That's a lot. That is a large family. Uh, so that was Hattie Canty. And, uh, yeah, that was faster than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> You're good. Mine might be a wee bit. Have you ever heard of... Um... Jane Austen before? I have heard of <laughs> a person named Jane Austen. Well, I'm going to go because I know nothing about it. And we, I don't know why I was thinking about it the other day. I was like, I don't know anything about her. Okay. Turns out we don't really either, but I'll fill in the blanks. Well, uh, 
You'll have to talk to Mary about her. I will talk to Mary. Don't tell her that I'm doing this. I will not she'll, tell her. Uh, she'll yell at me for all the things I get wrong. Uh, she will see this episode um, <laughs> when we post it. Maybe. So. Say Joan Austin, <laughs> like just misspell it yeah. or something. So, I mean, I know about the book she writes. Yeah. And I know that she never married, and that's about all I knew. And I thought she died early, young. She does. Yes. Okay, so Jane Austen was born in Steventon, Steventon, Hampshire, on December 16, 1775. She was born a month later than her parents expected. Her father wrote of her arrival in a letter that her mother certainly expected to have been brought to bed a month ago. He added that her arrival was a was particularly welcome as a future companion to her sister. Um, the winter of 1776 was particularly harsh, and it was not until April 5th that she was baptized at the local church with the single name Jane. Okay. So, that's her very beginning. And when the very beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to go back even further and just talk about her parents. So, her father, George Austin, came from an old, respected, and well, wealthy family of wool mer- merchants, but mm-hmm. over the centuries, as each generation um, of eldest sons received inheritances, their wealth was consolidated. consolidated excuse me. And George's branch of the family fell into poverty. Wow, it's going to be a really long day for me. (laughs) He and his two sisters were orphaned as children and had to be taken in by relatives. Um, George entered St. John's College of Oxford on a fellowship where he most likely met Cassandra Lee, the mom. The mom. She came from a prominent family um, where she grew up among the gentry. The gentry. Their income was modest with George's small per annum annuum living. Cassandra brought to the marriage the expectation of a small inheritance at the time of her mother's death. The Austins took up temporary residence at the nearby Dean Rectory. Um, Cassandra gave birth to see to three children while there, James, George, and Edward. Her custom was to keep an infant at home for several months and then place it with Elizabeth Littlewood, a woman living nearby to nurse and raise for 12 to 18 months. Which is weird. That's... That's pretty Here, normal. Here, take my child yeah. for a year. Here, governess, watch over yeah. my children for me. In 1768, the family finally took up residence in Steventon back in Steventon. Um, Henry was the first, or oh, sorry, the first time in Steventon. Henry's the first child to be born there okay. in 1771. About this time, um, Cassandra can no longer ignore the signs that little George was developmentally disabled. Mm-hmm. He was subject to seizures, may have been deaf and mute, and she chose to send him out to be fostered because 1700s. Because Cassandra, rich people in the 1700s. Yeah, yeah, was born, followed by Francis, and then we finally have our little Jane okay. in 1775. Was she the last? Mm-hmm. Okay. Of seven children. It was... Yeah, I think five boys, two girls. I think Francis Francis was a dude. Okay. Dude Francis. (laughs) Francis the dude. Francis the dude. For all you Mars Volta fans out there. (laughs) According to um, a a biographer, the atmosphere of the Austin home was an open, amused, easy intellectual one where the ideas of those with whom the Austins might disagree politically or socially were considered and discussed. During this period of her life, Austin attended church regularly, socialized with friends and neighbors, and read novels, often of her own composition, aloud with her family in the evenings. Socializing with the neighbors often meant dancing, either impromptu in someone's home, after supper, or at the balls held regularly at the assembly rooms in the town hall. That sounds about right. Her brother Henry later said that Jane was fond of dancing and excelled in it. 
1783, Austin and her sister Cassandra were sent to Oxford to be educated by Mrs. Anne Crawley, who took them with her to Southampton, where she moved uh, there later in the year. Okay. Um, but in the in the fall, both girls were sent back home when they caught typhus, and Jane nearly died, actually. Um, from then on, she was educated at home until she attended boarding school in, uh, like, the two years later. And at this boarding school, it was ruled by Mrs. La Turnell, who possessed a cork leg and a passion for theater, which I just love that they added that. A cork leg? A cork leg. Okay. Um, the sisters returned about a year later because the school fees were too expensive for them, and then... It said, after 1786, Austin never again lived anywhere beyond the bounds of her immediate family environment. Okay. From the age of 11 and perhaps earlier, Jane wrote poems and stories of her own and her family's amusement. In these works, the details of daily life are exaggerated, common plot devices are parodied, and the stories are full of anarch, anarch, anarchic, anarchaic. Anarchaic. Yes. Fantasies of female power, license, illicit behavior, and high general, or in general, high spirits. Okay. Anachronistic, maybe? Close enough. Close enough. Yeah. Okay. Um, in August of 1792, when she was 17, Jane started writing Catherine the or the Bower, which presaged her mature work, especially North Anger Abbey. <laughs> it was left unfinished, and the story picked up in Lady Susan, which an autobiographer describes as less prefiguring than Catherine. Do-do-do. Um, between 1793 and 1795, when she was 18 to 20, Jane wrote Lady Susan, a short novel usually described as her most ambitious and sophisticated early work. Mm -hmm. It's unlike any of uh, Jane's other works. Um, one of her biographers, Claire Tomlin, describes the novella's heroine as a sexual predator who uses her intelligence and charm to manipulate, betray, and abuse her lovers, friends, and family. She wrote... Um, told in letters, it is as neatly plotted as a play and as cynical in tone as any of the most outrageous of the Restorian dramatists who may have pro provided some of her inspiration. It stands alone in Austen's work as a study of a, an adult woman whose intelligence and force of character are greater than those of anyone she encounters. Okay. According to Janet Todd, the model for the title character may have been Eliza de Filio, who inspired <laughs> Austen with stories of her glamorous life and various adventure. Eliza's French husband was guillotined in 1794, and she married Jane's brother Henry in 1797. Yay for the French Revolution. Yes. <laughs> um... When Austen was 20, Tom Lafroy, a neighbor, visited, um... For about a year, is what it says. Visited for a year. Yeah. He had just finished, and by that I mean a month. Okay. He had just finished a, a university degree and was moving to London um, for training as a barrister. Okay. Tom and Jane would have been introduced at a ball or another neighborhood social gathering, and it is clear from Austin's letters to Cassandra that they spent a considerable amount of time together. I... She quotes, I am almost afraid to tell you how my Irish friend and I behaved. Imagine to yourself everything must pro profligate and shocking in the way of dancing and sitting down together. Austin wrote in her first surviving letter to her sister, Cassandra, that Tom was a very gentlemanlike, good-looking, pleasant young man. Nice. Five days later in another letter, Austin wrote that she expected an offer from her friend 
that I shall refuse him, however, unless he promises to give away his white coat. Going on to write, I will confine myself in the future to Mr. Tom Lefroy, for whom I don't, don't give a sixpence, and refuse all others. The next day, Austin wrote, The day will come on which I flirt my last with Tom Lefroy, and when you receive this, it will be all over. My tears flow as I write this melancholy idea. Aww. Um. So that's kind of like the one person that they talk about that may have been somebody so after finishing lady susan austin began her first full-length novel eleanor and marianne her sister remembered that it was read to the family before 1796 and was told through a series of letters without surviving original manuscripts there is no way to know how much of the original draft survived in the novel published anonymously in 1811 as sense and sensibility okay Austin began a second novel, First Impressions, later pre- published as Pride and Prejudice. That's the one that I've read. In 1796. She completed the initial draft in August at 21. Do, do, do. As with all of her novels, Austin read the work out loud to her family as she was working on it, and it became an established favorite. Nice. At this time, her father made the first attempt to publish one of her novels. Um... Austin's letter, uh, when he went to go get it published, they marked it declined by return of post. Um, She may not have known that her father had actually tried to get it published. I think he may have done it, like, trying to be surprised for her. Yeah. Um, Remember when that was a thing you could do? Yeah. Is just publish somebody else's work? Yeah. (laughs) Um... We're not going out with that. Um, During the middle of 1798, after finishing revisions of Eleanor and Marion, Austin began writing a third novel with the working title Susan, later Northanger Abbey, Mm -hmm. a satire on the popular Gothic novel. Okay. Austin completed her work about a year later. In early 1803, Henry Austin offered Susan, one of her brothers, offered Susan to Benjamin Crosby, a London publisher who paid £10 for the copyright. Crosby promised early publication and went so far as to advertise the book publicly as being in the press, but did nothing more. The manuscript remained in Crosby's hand unpublished until Austin repurchased the copyright from him in 1816. What a douchebag. Yeah. Um, In December of 1800, the dad, George Austin, unexpectedly announced his decision to retire from the ministry, and they left Steventon, and they moved to a place called Bath. While retirement and travel were good for the elder Austins, I like how they said that, Jane Austen was shocked to be told she was moving from the only home she had ever known. An indication of her state of mind is her lack of productivity as a writer during the time she lived in Bath. She was able to make some revisions to Susan. Um, one, of the, one of the biographers suggests this reflects a deep depression disabling her as a writer, but another one disagrees, arguing that Austen wrote or revised her manuscripts throughout her creative life except for a few months after her father died. It is often claimed that Austin was unhappy in Bath, which caused her to lose interest in writing, but it is just as possible that Austin's social life in Bath prevented her from spending much time writing novels. Okay. It's hard to write when you're going out every night. Yeah. Yeah. The critic Robert Irving Irvine argued that if Austin spent more time writing novels when she was in the countryside, it may... It might just have been because she had more spare time as opposed to being more happy in the countryside as is often argued. Okay. Furthermore, Austin frequently both moved and traveled over southern England during this period, which was hardly a conductive environment for writing a long novel. They moved, they hopped a bit. Right. 
Austin sold the rights to publish Susan to a publisher, Crosby and Company, who paid her £10. The Crosby and Company advertised Susan and yet again, but never published it. Like, Why? I don't fucking get it. The years from 1801 to 1804 are something of a blank space for Austin's for Austin scholars as Cassandra destroyed all of her letters from her sister in this period for unknown reasons. We'll touch on that okay. at the very end. Family but spot? Not really. Uh, no? Well, I'll tell you their reasons okay. later. In December of 1802, Austin received her only known proposal of marriage. As to, Even though she liked the guy, Tom, they never like officially were engaged. Right. They never proposed it or proposed as described by Caroline Austin, Jane's niece, a Reginald Big Wither, that's, that's literally his name. Big Wither? Big Dash Wither, a descendant. Harris was not attractive. <laughs> he was a large, plain-looking man who spoke little, sluttered, or stuttered when he did speak, was aggressive in conversation, and almost completely tactless. However, Austin had known him since both were young, and the marriage offered many practical advan- advantages to Austin and her family. Okay. He was the heir to an extensive family estate located in the area where their sisters had grown up. With these resources, Austin could have provided her parents a comfortable old age, give Cassandra a permanent home, and perhaps assist her brothers in their careers. By the next morning, Austin realized she had made a mistake and withdrew her acceptance. No contemporary letters or diaries described how Austin felt about this proposal. Irving Irvine described Bigweather as somebody who seems to have been a man very hard to like, let alone love. So around early 1809, Austin's brother Edward offered his mother and sisters a more settled life, the use of a large cottage in Chowton Village. What is so, it? C-H-A-W-T-O-N. Chowton? Chowton, yeah. Okay. During her time in Chowton, Jane Austen published four generally well-received novels. Nice. Through her brother, Henry, the publisher Thomas Egerton agreed to publish Sense and Sensibility, which, like all of Jane Austen's novels, except Pride and Prejudice, was published on commission. Okay. Reviews were favorable, and the novel became fashionable among young aristocratic opinion makers. The edition sold out by mid-1813. Austen's novels were published in larger editions than was normal for this period. I like this part. The small size of the novel reading... Uh, public and the large costs associated with hand production, particularly the cost of handmade paper, meant that most novels were published in editions of 500 copies or less to reduce the risk to the publisher and the novelist. Um, Even some of the most successful titles during this period were issued in editions of not more than 750 or 800 copies, and later reprinted if demand continued. Austin's novels were published in larger editions, ranging from about 750 copies of Sense and Sensibility to about 2,000 copies of Emma. Wow. It is not clear whether the decision to print more copies than usual of her novels was driven by the publisher or the author. Since all but one of Austen's books were originally published on commission, the risk of overproduction was largely hers, or Cassandra's after her death, and publishers may have been more willing to produce larger edition than normal practice when their own funds weren't at risk. Right. Um, and then it says editions of popular works of nonfiction were often much larger. Um, so... Time story novels. Yeah. Austin was feeling unwell by early 1816, but ignored the warning signs like everyone does. By the middle of that year, her decline was unmistakable, and she began a slow, irregular deterioration. The majority of biographers rely on Dr. Vincent Cope's 1964 retrospective diagnosis and list her cause of death as Addison's disease, although her final illness has also been described as resulting from Hodgkin's lymphoma. Okay. 
when her uncle died and left his entire fortune to his wife, effectively disinheriting his relatives, she suffered a relapse writing. I am ashamed to say that the shock of my uncle's will brought on a relapse, but a weak body must excuse weak nerves. She continued to work in spite of her illness, dissatisfied with the ending of the Elliot's later persuasion. Um, she rewrote the final two chapters, which she finished on August 6, 1816. In January of 1817, she began The Brothers, titled Sanditon, when published in 1925, and completed 12 chapters before stopping work in mid-March 1817, probably due to illness. Right. Uh, an autobiographer describes Sanditon's heroine, Diana Parker, as an energetic invalid. <laughs> That's a great description. And the novel Austin mocked hypochondriacs and though she describes the heroine as bilious, five days after abandoning the novel, she wrote of herself that she was turning every wrong collar and living, living chiefly on the sofa. She put down her pen on March 18th, 1817, making a note of it. She died in, Jul uh, in Winchester on July 18th, 1817 at the ripe young age of 41. Um, her brother Henry thought his clerical connections or not thought through his through. Clear, his through his clerical connections um arranged for his sister to be buried in the north aisle of winchester cathedral okay. the epitaph composed by her brother james praises austin's personal qualities expresses hope for her salvation and mentions uh the extraordinary endowments of her mind but does not explicitly mention her achievements as a writer there is little biographical information about Jane Austen's life except for the few letters that survived and the biographical notes her family members wrote. During her lifetime, Austen may have written as many as 3,000 letters, but only 161 survived. That's not a lot. Many of these letters were written to Austen's older sister, Cassandra, who in 1843 burned the greater part of them and cut pieces out of those she kept. Ostensibly, Cassandra destroyed or censored her sister's letters to prevent the, their falling into the hands of relatives and ensuring that younger nieces did not read any of Jane Austen's sometimes acid or forthright comments on neighbors or family members. So that's one of their... Uh, they think that might the be a reason. Yeah, yeah, theory. Thank you. Cassandra believed that in the interests of tact and Jane's penchant for forthrightness, these details should be destroyed. Um... So it leaves uh, modern biographers little to work with when it comes to her. Well, I mean, if she did just burn the gossipy parts, they probably wouldn't have gotten much out of that. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah. So really all I have to leave with is in her lifetime, she completed six novels. Northanger Abbey, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, Emma, and Persuasion. Four of them were published before her death, two after. Okay. And that is a little bit about Jane Austen. Nice. I feel like we got, I think we, I feel like we had a trivia question about that one night and Clay Baker must have given us the wrong we, answer. We did. I thought I, he well, had... he included the unfinished works. Okay, good. Okay. Then that makes sense. I did leave one out. Um, okay. Um, for those who don't know, Mary is a big Jane Austen fan. Uh, Jane Austen is her favorite writer, mm -hmm. um, and she loves all all novels in that type of style and mm -hmm. in that time frame. Um, and I texted her one night because we had a Jane Austen question, and my phone auto-corrected Austen to the town of Austen in um, 
in Texas. And Mary was so mad at me. I thought she was never going to forgive me. Um, Sir, I texted her once and it autocorrected her name to Mark. That is true. <laughs> you did do that. You're in a sentimental <laughs> thing. And I was like, oh, shit. Um, yeah. Oh, do you want to tell the story about my friend, uh, my friend's comment on our last episode? Yes. Yeah. He said I should look up Eddie Rittenbacher or something like that. Rittenbacher, yeah. Which I have looked him up before, and I still might do it about him. I just couldn't find enough information that I wanted to say that I might do a whole compilation like I did the, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Because he had a really interesting story, and when I when you showed me that, I was like, oh my gosh, I actually have looked him up. My friend John Beecham uh, commented on our last post uh, that she should look this guy up, mm-hmm. and she has. She's done it in the past. She mm-hmm. just hasn't done an episode on it yet. Um, but I wanted to call. I wanted to shout out John Beecham with uh, American Fantastic. If you're interested in what we do, you should look into uh, American Fat- Fantastic and what they do. Um, yeah. Do you want to get out of here? Yeah. Go rescue the puppy. And go work on some shelves. And then go put some shelves together. We're both so excited to do that. I'm super (laughs) thrilled. Um, As always, you can find all of our stuff on our website at absentactivismarts.wordpress.com. You can find my novels there. I have two, one of which takes place in Las Vegas. Um, It is Red Hats and Black Masks. Um, another one which takes place in a um, fictional southern town, which is in the shadows of, of my mind. Um, we have uh, some short stories. I've already written my Halloween short story for this year. It is called uh, What Moves Beyond the Walls. Oh, I can't wait to read it. it um, it'll come out, I think I'm going to do a week before Halloween again. Okay, do it. Um, so we can do that. Uh, a week be- before Halloween, so it should be our two-year anniversary episode. Um, That's crazy. The Halloween short story, and then our Halloween episode is what I'm planning on. Um, we have artwork from Katie White. Uh, she is open for commissions. Um, we have music from um, Joshua Paul Brooks, who is actually playing a show as we speak over at the Bean. Um, and Chet Osman. Um, we have, is that everything we have? I think that's everything that we have on the site. Um, we have a Facebook, it's Absinthe Activism Arts. If you want to go look that up, give us a follow. Um, you'll be alerted to, uh, volunteer opportunities, uh, activism opportunities, and all of our episodes as they come out. Um, we have a Twitter, which I don't use very often but i have been posting there more um i have an instagram if you want to see pictures of mercury he's very cute um it's awm rights i'm also on the fediverse at um awm rights on mastodon and awm rights on diaspora so if you feel like giving me a follow at either of those places you can um we also have a patreon with some uh uh reward tiers if you want to become a patron feel free to look us up at absinthe activism arts and i feel like that's everything our ending our ending our outro gets longer every time we do it um i really want to write a script so that it's it's cut down a little bit okay
Um, we're going to get out of here. We'll see you next episode. We love you and uh, have a great week. Mortar shells have deafened my ears, but the ringing has lessened. The dreams I've dreamed, they've threatened my sanity at your presence is a blessing. For you make me forget the times tragedy and I had met and the nights I'd awakened in sweat. It seems the years before you were my greatest debt. Honey darling, look above The moon fits the clouds like a glove Honey darling, my love Sometimes I fish the sky for what I'm thinking of Cause my tongue stays tied in knots this feeling inside, can I ride it to the top? My hands have closed the gates. Now we're inside, let's love and leave it up to fate.